Bowling alone. It was a researcher who found out that bowling alleys were getting more and more uh, lanes booked by single bowlers. People would come and just bowl on their own. And sort of a, that, now that book's a little bit older, and, uh, and uh, I'm not sure how, if the bowling alone uh, trend has continued. A uh, new bo- newer book is called Alone Together, and I think we can relate to this one. And it's Sherry Turkle writes this one. She says, why we expect more from technology and less from each other. So if you can picture it, it's, uh, uh, you ever been, uh, maybe you've had this experience. Have you ever been in a gathering of people and uh, you look down to check something on your phone and then you check something else. And by the time you look up, you look around and everyone's on their phone. Ever had that experience? You ever just, like, I've done this once or twice, just sort of stopped and just sort of looked around the room and was like, look at us, we're together. <laughs> but we're not together, right? And so I think that's what uh, Sherry Turkle is talking about in Alone Together. We expect more from technology and less from each other. It's a growing trend. Uh, then, the, I was just looking at, um, hmm, lost the name here. Uh, another author was writing about... Um, uh, this change. He says, in 1950, only 4 million Americans lived alone. And by population of that, of, of that day, that accounted for less than 10% of all households. So in 1950, less than 10% of all households were a single person. Today, more than 32 million Americans are, are going solo. That's the name of his book. And they represent 28% of all households at the national level. That's a significant rise in people living alone. And in some cities, uh, it's much higher. So it's more than 40% of households in cities like San Francisco, Seattle, Atlanta, Denver, and Minneapolis are people living on their own. And it goes even higher in Washington, D.C. and Manhattan in in New York. They, They call them the twin capitals of solo nation because it's 50% basically of the households in those cities, which is, has only one occupant. And this isn't just an American trend. Uh, the author also noted that in Stockholm, Sweden, 60% of all households have just one occupant. So today is the day of uh, iPhones and iPads and iTunes and let's just say a whole I life. Just me. And uh, so the I've been reading an author, and he was, his question was this. Is there any space in the I life for the we life of Christianity? See, at the heart of Christianity is God's desire for a people to, dis- to display his character. They do this through their obedience to his word in their relationship with him and with each other. So therefore, God sent his son to call a people to follow him. And part of following the Son is calling still more to follow the Son. And then in their life together, these people display the we life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Together, they demonstrate God's own love, God's own holiness, and God's own oneness and unity. So, God's Son therefore gave his last command before ascending to heaven. Go and make disciples. In the lives of these people, he's called to follow him, in other words, should be dedicated to helping others follow Jesus. So the Christian life is the discipled life. Yeah, hear that? 
I like when I can say a dramatic sentence and it has a soundtrack to it. <laughs> Thanks for helping. So the Christian life is the disciple life, and it is the dis- <laughs> Oh, now you're trying too hard. I, uh, I- the Christian life is the disciple life, and it is the discipling life. Did you get that? So we're being discipled, or called to be a disciple of Christ, but we're called to disciple as well. Christianity is not for loners or individualists. It's for people traveling together down the narrow road that leads to life. You must follow, and you must lead. You must be loved, and you must love. And we love others best by helping them to follow Jesus down their pathway of life. So the series that we're in, I didn't have a title for it last week, and then I got some great help from Chris Strinnen on this one, who, who created the, I'm not sure if the template's up there or not, but we're calling this series Discipleable Me. Discipleable Me. Not Despicable Me, but Discipleable Me. And I think Discipleable is us making up a word, because I didn't find it anywhere. Uh, but are you Discipleable? Are you discipleable? And what are the things that make a person discipleable? Last week we talked about how Jesus is calling a very specific type of follower. He's calling people to be his disciple. He said, deny yourself. If you want to be his disciple, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross and follow him. And so we talked about that, that there isn't sort of like, you know, run-of-the-mill Christians and then superstar Green Beret disciples, that every Christian is called to be a disciple. And a disciple is a Christian, and a Christian is a disciple. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to follow him as a disciple. So disciple implies a lot of things. It's disciple sounds like discipline, doesn't it? And that's very much involved, right? There's, there's a discipline. There's Jesus' teaching. There's uh, Jesus' practices. He said, I want you to teach people to obey. And, uh, and so there's, there's discipline involved in that. Um, and we're following Jesus, and we're imitating Jesus. We're hoping to become like Jesus in our character, to love what he loved, to think like he thought, and to, uh, to act like he did, and to, and to fought, carry out his mission in the world. So, discipleable me. Jesus is calling you to be his disciple. He's calling me to be his disciple. So what? And so these weeks, we're just talking about what are the practices of disciples? What are, the, what are the things that mark you as a disciple? And the one I want to talk about today is that disciples gather. Disciples gather. We have a few written statements on this from our church that we've already written. Uh, one of them is just on the wall. Okay, you can look on either side. See that big sign that says celebrate big? Celebrate big. So we gather to celebrate God together. Hey, you want to say, say this with me? Celebrate big. We gather to celebrate God together. Here's a little bit more on that, what we've written uh, and put to paper because we want to really spell this out. So we believe in celebrating the glory of God together in big gatherings. From the earliest days in the Christian movement, believers met regularly in the temple courts with numbers of 3,000 to 5,000. And like the early church, we emphasize the necessity of corporate preaching, teaching, worship, prayer, and communion to encounter God together as his people. The things we do 
when gathered as his church, help to spur us on as we follow Jesus with our lives. And we're called to celebrate the goodness of God together in a big way, regardless of each of our personal circumstances. So we have a few just sort of things we'd said under, the, you know, some real practical steps, you know, encouraging people to, you know, commit to attend church. Like, commit to do that. That's a great thing in being a disciple of Christ. It will help you. Um, here's another one. Invite people to attend church. Um, that's another great thing that will help others grow and be discipled. It'll help you be discipled, too. And go public with your faith through baptism. Those are some of the things that we've just recommended. Uh, do you know what a yuppie is? A yuppie? It stands for what? Young Urban Professional. Yeah, Young Urban Professional. Yuppie. So you've heard the term before. Maybe we forgot what it meant. Uh, I heard a new term this last week. Guppy. Guppy. And I was like, what is that? Anyhow, I don't know if it'll stick. But it's, it's talking about... Um, the younger generation who's seeing the crazy high housing prices and they're guppies because they're giving up, gup, they're giving up on ever owning a home. Guppies. Not that encouraging, that one. Nobody wants to be a guppy, but giving up. Well, you know, in the church sometimes Christians can be guppies. I'm not talking about giving up on owning a home, but they could give up on meeting together and this is our key scripture, Hebrews 10, which talks about this. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up, not being a guppy, <laughs> not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So, Christians can become guppies. We can give up on gathering. We can uh, really absorb the uh, the cultural um, practices of our day, which is to live very individualistic life lifestyles, to live very uh, private lifestyles, to live uh, alone and separate, and to not join in in any communal uh, form of of uh, connecting, um, to shy away from being discipled, and to uh, really approach even going to church as, uh, as just another consumeristic option in our lives. So if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be truly countercultural, you're going to have to push back a little bit. In all of us, there's a, we, we grew up in an individualistic culture. We grew up in a consumeristic culture, a materialistic culture. We, all these things are sort of the water we've been swimming in since we were born. And when we are discipled, there's some things that get pushed that need to be pushed back in that regard. So I was reading uh, this great little book, which is called Discipling by Mark Deaver. And uh, he, had the, he has all these chapters that just poke at me and annoy me. Anyhow, here's one that uh, prodded me a little bit. He says, um, how did you attend church last Sunday? Stop and consider. Where did you park? What time did you get to church? Where did you sit? Who did you speak to? Each one of these decisions provide you with the opportunity to give yourself to others and so join in the work of Christ. Or they provide you with an opportunity to look out for yourself and do what is best for you. 
So which was it? Did you consciously strategize how to bless others with each one of those decisions or not? Being a disciple of Jesus means orienting our lives towards others just as Jesus did. It means laboring for the sake of others. This love for others is at the heart of discipling. We set our sights on serving others for Christ's sake, just as Christ came into the world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Mark Devers. The church's discipling work begins simply by gathering together. And the goal is to help people follow Jesus, or as Hebrews puts it, stir one another up towards love and good works. And how does the church do that? Well, first of all, by not, negle- by, by not neglecting meeting together. Well, that's a double negative. By meeting together. <laughs> by gathering. This is how we encourage one another. It's the means that uh, we use to, um, to disciple. The Lord means for us to repeatedly and regularly gather together and that the regular meeting gives shape to following Jesus and helping others follow Jesus. The local church is itself the basic discipler of Christians. It does this through its weekly gatherings and accountability structures. And these, in turn, provide the context for one-on-one discipling. So, one more time back to Hebrews 10, and then we're going to move on. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider. It means think. It means brainstorm. It means really put your mind to it. Let's consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day that it's talking about is the second coming of Jesus. So if you have any inkling inside of you that the second coming of Jesus is uh, close at hand, I, I think I've read lots of people online or different places where that's what, that's what they're feeling, that they feel that this is close. We'll do some uh, teaching on the second coming um, as we get closer to Christmas. We'll celebrate uh, the second advent of the second coming along with the first advent, which is what we do when we're celebrating Christmas um, or, or Jesus' first coming. So we'll talk more about that. But I found that sometimes people, when they think about the second coming, it, 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 they get nervous. They, it, you know, there's a bit of doom that settles in. They see things getting darker in the world, and they, they, they fear, and anxiety rises. Um, I think in light of all that, it's great to recognize that the instructions in the New Testament is to say, if you see this, this day approaching, if that's what you sense is what's coming, the response is, Consider how we can spur another on, one another on to love and good deeds. And get together. Gather. Bring encouragement. Be in a place, of, a place of great love and great unity. Where we celebrate the hope that we have in Christ. Where we proclaim who, who he is to, in our lives and where we, and where we uh, disciple one another. So there's a couple of roles, I think, in, this, in, this, in the gathering that I'm, I'm going to draw out of Colossians here. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says this. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend. Ooh, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So Paul is writing and he's saying, like, One of the roles of the gathering 
is to proclaim Christ. One of the, one of the ways that the, the gathering disciples is that we proclaim Christ. We preach the word and we, we, we declare uh, the truths of the gospel. And through that, we admonish and teach everyone with all wisdom because it's the gospel, it's the word of God, it's the focus on, on exalting Jesus. Those are the things that uh, provide the framework for us to become mature. To this end, Paul said, he strenuously contends, strenuously contends with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So I think this is a, this is a great verse for uh, leadership in the church. A great verse for leadership in the church. Um, of course, leaders uh, among, amongst all of us, we all have this role, should consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so as leaders, we, we you know, there's lots of different leaders in the church, but we, we meet and we try to think of programs that will provide structure uh, to help people be discipled. It's not just programs, obviously, that's, that help people be discipled, but we try to think of what areas do people need to be discipled in our culture, in our day, in our Christian community. So years ago, we started offering alpha programs, uh, which is just all about the gospel and all just ex- understanding the gospel. And many people have taken that course as Christians to understand better how to communicate the gospel. Many of people have taken that as their opportunity to invite a friend to learn the basics about what it means to follow Jesus. And that's been discipling both ways. And many people who are not Christians have come on their own because they want to know more about their faith. And a number of people have given their lives to Christ. We've offered the Set Free Retreat because part of discipling people is, just like Lisa was saying this morning, she described some things that had, through her experiences in life, had stuck to her, and she really needed deliverance from. And we are praising God because God has delivered her in those ways. She's been set free from things that... Uh, I, I love the part of Lisa's story where she says, uh, the psychiatrist says, you will never leave the mental institution. You will never leave it. Talk about a dark pronouncement over your life. You can never be set free. And yet we know, at least as a testament to that, that Christ offers us freedom. So we've been offering the set free retreat. We offer a marriage course every year. I think you should all take, if you're married, you should all take the marriage course at some time. You should all, whether your marriage is rocking and you just want to go from uh, awesome to even more awesomer, that's great. Or if you're, but no matter where you are, I think you'll never regret investing in your marriage. So the marriage course, we're offering that. This year, we're hoping to offer financial peace uh, course. Um, So, because we know that people, that's an area that causes people great anxiety and stress. And also, it's a lordship area. It's an area where, um, all of these are, right? It's an area where we want to uh, manage our finances as disciples of Christ, we want to, uh, money not to be our master. You can't serve both God and money. We want to serve God. But we, have, we live in the real world where we have money troubles. So we're hoping to offer that as another program to help give some structure to help disciple people in these areas. Uh, we've talked about p- potentially offering the Kairos Missions course. We want to have more and more of a, a mission mindset within our lives. And so that's a course that really talks about the mission that God's on and trains us to understand it from the, from the roots up. 
And so these are all sorts of things that leaders provide so that people can be discipled. We also are trying to provide teaching that's biblically faithful. I've said it before, and I think I should just keep saying it. You don't come to church to hear my opinions or anyone else's opinions. You, hopefully, you're coming to church to hear the Word of God. And, I mean, we, uh, we offer commentary on the Word of God, but just like I, I think of when Jesus read, even Jesus himself, when he um, was in the temple in Nazareth, or the, the synagogue in Nazareth, he stood to read the Scriptures and then sat for the commentary. And many church traditions have sort of a, uh, something that sort of tells you the difference between commentary and the Word, right? Commentary can be fallible, right? Some churches will have two different places. They'll have a place where you read the Bible and then a place where someone goes to make commentary. So to distinguish between this is the Holy Word of God and this is hopefully helpful practical commentary that will help you live your Christian life. Hopefully it's good discipling. But you can question that. Don't question this. This is, this is the stuff you take to the bank, and this is the stuff, you know, check it out. Read along your Bible. Check the context. Make sure that makes sense. You're not here for my opinion. We're here for the Word of God. So the leaders have a role, keeping the gospel clear. We don't want to slip into moralism or just sort of some sort of therapeutic deism, like just trying to, we want, it to, we want to keep the gospel clear. We're sinners. We need a Savior. Thankfully, God sent Jesus out of mercy. We, there's no way to get ourselves out of our sin predicament. We are a rebellious creation against uh, a gracious creator, and we totally uh, rejected his way and went our own way. So there's really no hope for us on our own. We couldn't make ourselves righteous. And so God, knowing our hopeless situation, sent Jesus to, be, to take the punishment that our sins deserved on the cross. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And then he died the death on the cross that we deserve to die so that our sins could be, uh, the punishment for our sins could be put on him and his righteous track record, his perfect obedience before the Father could become our uh, righteousness. This incredible exchange was possi- be made possible and it made, it made it possible for people to be right with God that we could be forgiven of our sins and we could be adopted into his family and we could, be, and we could have eternal life with God forever. And when, if anyone would repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they can be saved and they could be made brand new and have a brand new start in life. So it's a, the role of leaders to keep the gospel clear. We, one of the things we hopefully use to do that is, is something we do when we gather, right? We, we, once a month, we celebrate communion. I've noticed, I, I'll repent of this right now. I've noticed um, when we used to do communion coming forward, uh, we would always, I, I would be more clear about saying whether or not you should take this trip forward to receive communion. And it's based on, this is what believers do. Believers do this. If you've come to faith in Christ, if you've crossed that line of faith where you're saying, I, I'm trusting in Jesus to save me, and, I, and, I, and he, you know, he's my Savior. I'm trusting in what he has done, not in my own works. So we try to explain the gospel. So we, I would try to explain the gospel so you'd know, well, is this something I should participate in or not? Because it's for, it's for believers. And um, 
I notice now that we have these cups and we've gotten into this cup thing, I don't say that as much anymore. So I just was reading this and thinking about it and thought, I, I need to repent about that. I need to repent about just sort of make that clear again, right? This is for believers. And baptism is another sort of make it clear moment. I mean, it's a really awesome make it clear moment. But it's incumbent on leaders to sit down with somebody who says, I want to get baptized. And, and are they a Christian? Do they understand the, the basics of the gospel? And we have children get baptized. We have teenagers. We have adults get baptized. But it's, these are some of the things that we keep the gospel clear in our gatherings. So these are, these are all things that leaders do, and, and they're, they're helpful. But I think as much as we provide programs uh, in the church, I think what we need even more than programs is we need a culture of discipling. Let me read you another verse. This is in the same book of Colossians. Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I think this is for every Christian believer. Your, the hope is that the word of God would dwell in you richly, that, that, that you'd read the word, you'd hear the word in teaching, and that you'd, you'd, receive, you'd receive it and you'd respond to it, and, and it would help disciple you, but also that, that the word that you retain, that you, that you come to uh, um, know and to embrace, that that is what's on your tongue in conversations and with other believers. That as we talk about the troubles we have in life, as we talk about the challenges we're facing, as we talk about those things, that Scripture comes to mind and that we share it with each other. I, I, I always paraphrase Bonhoeffer, but he just said, again, this is my paraphrase of him, that Jesus inside of you is... Stronger than the Jesus inside of me and the Jesus, or the, no, sorry, the Jesus on the tongue, yeah, that's better. The Jesus on the tongue of my friend is basically what I need, and the Jesus on the tongue of me is what you need. Basically, it's not meant to be a solo act. I can't tell you how many times someone's almost apologized for sharing scripture with me that just is really encouraging. Like they'll say, well, Steve, Pastor Steve, I know you know this verse. It's just John 3.16, but I just thought, you know, that's sort of what we're talking about right now. And it's blessed me. Huge. Because I need the Word of God coming from your mouth into the situations of my life. And you need the Word of God coming from my mouth into the situations of your life. And that's what we need from each other. That's what a culture of discipling is, is where people are teaching and admonishing each other. Admonishing is like encouraging generally. And sometimes it can be, you know, slightly confrontive because the word does confront our disbelief or our, our different things. But it's, we need always to be corrected by the plumb line of the word of God. Like we get a little bit off kilter. We get sort of thinking just like the culture around us. We're not living a countercultural life as a disciple would. We need our brothers and sisters with the word of God dwelling richly in them to speak. To speak the word. To speak words of encouragement. Here's the other one. 
that I think is part of every... So I think that's every disciple's role is to admonish one another and to encourage one another and teach one another just by speaking about the Bible and, letting, and speaking about the truths of God and reminding each other and encouraging each other with those things. Here's another dynamic that I think is really essential to the gathering. John 13, 34 to 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this is a, this is a, this marks you as a disciple. Or for people to say, look at a group and say, what's that group about? Well, there's this dynamic of love and acceptance, which Lisa was talking about before. There's the presence of God amongst them. These are people who are receiving the love of God. And, and from that strength of having received the love of God are freely extending love towards each other. It's a huge part of the gathering is the love of others. See, a discipling life is an others-oriented life. It labors to proclaim Christ and present others mature in Christ. That's the goals. Now, we need help to do that. We need help in an I culture to be we people. In fact, I, I was fighting internally even over the title of this series, Discipleable Me. It's really discipleable us, but then I lose the meme altogether, so I, we're hanging on to the meme. But it's discipleable us. You're called to be a disciple of Jesus and to be discipling each other. And you say, well, I, I just became a Christian last week. Well, you're not actually uh, on the hook for what you don't know. You're not on the hook for what's not there. I mean, you are on the hook to grow in those things. You are on the hook to, 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 to fill your life with the Word of God. But what you have, Give. And so when you attend church on a Sunday, come to give. I mean, I, some people have that formalized. You know, if you're on the tech department or you're with the guest services team or you're, you're playing a role in the altar ministry team or the worship team, you have it. Yeah, you're coming to give, right? You're coming, sacrificing, using your talents and gifts to bless the rest of us. We appreciate that. That's awesome. That's incredible that you do that. But everyone should come ready to give. Whether you have a formalized role or you just... Barely dragged yourself out of bed this morning. You should come ready to give. Let me read you something. Back to Mark Deaver's provoking. It says, suppose that tomorrow a non-Christian friend of yours in another city for whom you've been praying for years becomes a Christian and starts attending an evangelical church in his city. How would you want that church to receive your friend whom you love? Presumably, you'd want the congregation as a whole to take responsibility for him. You'd want elders or older ones in the church to teach him. You'd want a number of individuals in particular to reach out to him, to take him under their wing and to disciple him. You'd want them to teach and model what it means to study the Bible, to walk in righteousness, to evangelize, to be a Christian spouse and parent, to stand up to the world, 
and to disciple others in turn. And how would you rejoice if that church took responsibility for your friend like this? So just flip it around. Someone's reading this book in another city right now. And their friend comes and experiences Hillcrest Church. Wouldn't it be incredible if there's a friend in another city rejoicing because of how we've loved, cared for, spoke the word of God into the life of their friend? who they really want to grow as a disciple of Jesus. I think what we need is we need to, we need to, uh, discipleship in, in many respects is becoming like Jesus in our character, in our practices, in our actions, in our intentions, in our loves. Becoming like Jesus. And I want to just talk about one, as a close here this morning, I want to talk about one aspect of becoming like Jesus, one Uh, one thing that I think really talks about how disciples gather. I think we're called to see people. We're called to see people. I don't know if you've ever studied um, or just taken a look at Jesus' life and have you ever read a story about Jesus and in the story you realized he noticed somebody you ever, you ever had a story where you read about Jesus where he noticed somebody? Let me just read you this. Our Savior walked through life with eyes wide open. Jesus noticed Nathaniel under a tree and Zacchaeus up in a tree. He noticed John's disciples following at a distance and the touch of one desperate woman while the masses pressed around him. Jesus watched in moments we think you shouldn't, like as, such as when the poor widow put all she had in the offering treasury. He also watched in moments we know we couldn't, such as when he himself was the offering. Even as he hung on the cross in intense agony, his eyes looked beyond his own suffering and responded with love. He prayed for those who crucified him. He comforted a criminal next to him and cared for his loved ones who were there for him. And through it all, Jesus kept his eyes on the work of his Father. Simply put, Jesus' entire life and ministry deliberately and compassionately communicated, I see you. Empowered by the truth that God keeps you and God keeps me as the apple of his eye, Because we know that, because that's true, because God notices you, because Jesus noticed you, then it's as a disciple who wants to imitate him. It's natural for us to uh, do what Paul said in Philippians 2.4. Each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's how we'll close this this morning. What I want you to do is, I want you just to, yeah, would you close your eyes maybe or whatever will help you focus? Let's just do that. What I want you to do is I want you to, um, 
Well, I'm going to ask first. Lord, would you, would you prompt us? I mean, we're open. We can't make you prompt us, but we ask for that. Would you prompt us? Would you show us somebody in our life uh, that you want us to disciple? Maybe it's someone we already have been given through your word responsibility for. Maybe it's someone in our family, if we're parents, it's our, it's our children. Maybe it's someone in our sphere of influence. Maybe it's, it's crossing a, a culture or ethnic barrier, but we, we, we recognize that you've been prompting us that way. Maybe someone our same age, but also maybe someone younger or older. So, Lord, who is, who is it that you want us to, to disciple, to be engaged in teaching and admonishing and encouraging and loving and noticing? Now, if, if someone just come, is in your mind right now, you feel like, well, that might be God or might not be. I, I just want to ask you to do this real on your own. I want you to just pray for them right now. Just pray for them. Pray that God would make them into a fully devoted follower of him. Now here, I'm just going to leave you with a hanging question here. How do you think you might go about discipling that person? I'll just leave it hanging for you to consider how you might spur them on to love and good deeds. How do you think you could do that? And keep in a conversation with the Lord about that. Or how could I do it? How could I adjust? How could I change something about our, how we relate? How we use our time or our proximity or our, in my schedule or whatever. Or the things I'll, I'll need to be courageous to bring up in conversation. Or my posture in my heart towards them. How can I take the next step in discipling that person? All right. I'll keep talking to the Lord about it as we sing, as we worship him. God wants to use you in wonderful ways.